Hey everybody, Steve here. Just really quickly wanted to encourage you to please join in our fall fundraising campaign. Click the donate link at the top of our page on onepeter5.com. You can also go through our sidebar widget. Uh, both of those show our progress meter. We've raised over $2,000, which is fantastic, but we've got 28 to go and we need your help. So please, if you would be so kind and find that what we're doing is valuable, make a contribution and help us to fund and build and keep growing One Peter 5. Thank you. Hello and welcome to the One Peter 5 podcast, episode 8. On today's episode, we talk about what to expect coming into this weekend's conclusion to the Extraordinary General Synod on Marriage and Family. Also, Elliot Bogus, 1 Peter 5 contributor and friend of the show, pinch hits for me as he interviews Fred Harris, a convert from both Protestantism and Eastern Orthodoxy, on the comparisons between Eastern Orthodoxy's concept of oikonomia and the proposed solutions for communion for the divorced and remarried. Plus, words of wisdom from a pope everybody's going to be talking about this weekend. Well, you know, as Pope Paul VI said, the least inexactitude, the smallest lapse in the mouth of a pope is intolerable. But who am I to judge? All this and more coming up next. Rebuilding Catholic Culture, Restoring Catholic Tradition. Things are coming to a head. Everywhere you look, around the world, things are coming to a head. Bad things. Mostly bad things. Not seeing a lot of good things coming to a head. However, there are some. We'll get to those in a minute. I've been saying for nearly a year that this synod going on right now is going to be the harbinger of a schism. It's going to be what ushers in a new schism in the church. People tend to look at statements like that as hyperbolic, but they're not, not necessarily. You have to understand what's actually taking place. Everybody keeps talking about how doctrine is not going to change. Doctrine is not going to change. They repeat it over and over. They repeat it almost as often as saying, the gates of hell will not prevail against the church. Well, we know these things. We know these things are true. We're Catholic. We understand the principles and the premises. Catholic doctrine doesn't change. It develops, but it doesn't contradict itself. The gates of hell will not prevail against the church. We know this. It's Christ's promise. But we don't know what that's going to look like, do we? This idea that the gates of hell will not prevail against the church seems to be believed by many Catholics today that nothing will really hurt the church. Nothing will affect her. Nothing will damage her. The word prevail indicates a finality, indicates Triumph. The gates of hell will not triumph over the church, will not have the final victory over the church. The Romans and the Sanhedrin did not have 
final victory over Christ, he rose from the dead. But they killed him, tortured him, put him in a tomb. It's reasonable to believe, especially if you look at all at Catholic prophecy, that the church will undergo a period of time in which it will look as though she has been almost completely destroyed. And she'll be raised back up. We are a a people of the resurrection, but we are also a people of the cross. There is no resurrection without the cross. The cross means death for us personally. It means death to self. It means dying to the desire to commit sins. It means dying to our own personal desires much of the time. It means sacrifice. Eventually it means physical death. We have to die in order to rise again. Well, the church is entering a period of chastisement. I don't know if any of you are possessed of certain spiritual gifts. Spiritual gifts are strange because it's very difficult. You know, you can't get a diagnosis from a priest who says, oh, you have the gift of wisdom. You have the gift of discernment. It's not like that. But there are things that we all experience, and I think the closer we come to our Lord, uh, the clearer things tend to be. It's one of the reasons why it's so important to stay in a state of grace, because if you are clean of soul, no matter how many times you have to go to confession a month to make that happen, you can, you can hear and see things more clearly with the eyes of grace. A spiritual gift that I believe that I have has to do with being able to perceive and judge character and to ascertain the presence of evil, the workings of the enemy. Now, I don't know for certain, and I don't know to what extent that I have these things, but my experience has borne out the fact that I, I have something in this regard. When I have a strong gut feeling about a person, about an event, or about something on the horizon, it's very rarely entirely wrong, and most often it's, it's mostly right. This week has been a really bad week in my family. I'm not going to get into all the details of it, but it's been a lot of stuff that's gone on that's just not been good. Health issues, um, you know, other stuff, interpersonal stuff, stuff that I just, it, it's a huge distraction. It's a huge weight. It keeps me from focusing on what's going on. In the church, it's a huge week in the church and a a terrible week for the family of Christ at the same time, right? I mean, the health of the church is in peril and there is a lot of interpersonal stuff going on between the princes of the church. Our Lady of Akita warned that 
bishops would oppose bishops and cardinals would oppose cardinals, paraphrasing, but this internecine struggle that we're watching unfold, we were told that this was coming. And it's perhaps the boldest internal struggle in the church that we've seen since the Arian crisis in the 4th century. And in the evenings, on more than one occasion this week, I found myself inexplicably filled with a sense of dread. A sense of foreboding. Unable to put my finger on what it is, just a feeling deep in my bones and in my soul that something has changed has just changed. A new chapter has begun. And it's not going to be a nice one. There are times when I have these intuitions and I just really hope that I'm wrong. But I can tell you the spiritual battle has been pitched. It's been rough. And you need to understand that in your own life, the things that go on that drag you down and discourage you and make you lose hope and make you question your faith, those aren't all necessarily just coincidences that sort of crop up. It's not just that's life. There's a war going on for our souls. And those of us who are trying with everything that we've got to stay close to the church and to cut through the confusion and to figure out what's going on and to be faithful to Christ. We're going to get hit the hardest. It's just, it's just how it is. Any one of us that has an opportunity to reach another person and keep them on the right track, we're targets. The enemy is working in the open. The demonic is playing across the world stage. And the time, I think, I think, the time of chastisement is near. There's a reason why I started 1 Peter 5 sort of on a wing and a prayer. And it's because I, I had this very overwhelming feeling that time was short to build the bunker. The bunker is constructed of those things that keep us safe and protect us when the storm hits and it's ripping up everything around us. I say storm, I'm not talking about a nice little summer rain. I'm talking about a Category 5 hurricane, a tsunami tornadoes. I'm talking about really earth shattering. I don't know how to hold on to my faith kind of stuff. We need to be rooted in this faith, in Christ, in the sacraments, or we will be swept away. And I am telling you, I'm hearing from people, people who are either struggling to hold on to their faith when they watch what's going on and start believing that Maybe Christ's promises about the indefectibility of the church weren't really real. Or people who've already fallen away from the faith 
and have lost all hope and don't see the point of even trying to come back because, as one person put it, why should I believe in a church that doesn't even seem to believe in itself? Another person wrote to me and said that they were considering joining the church, but and they were actually going through the process, I believe, of RCIA, and then Pope Francis is the one that scared them away because he said things that they couldn't understand and reconcile, and it just didn't seem right. We have a crisis of leadership in the church, and Peter's silence is deafening. Some of the things that Pope Francis has said in the past have been troubling, and I think any honest person would have to admit that he has been a lightning rod for controversy since his election. But I've never seen so many reasonable people, so many faithful, well-formed Catholics, so many Catholics who have positions within the church or academia or within institutions that serve Catholic life, well-formed, well-educated, well-catechized, and reasonable people asking open questions about, is this Pope even Orthodox? Is he a heretic? Is he an anti-pope? The articles are coming fast and furious, and I don't know about you, but it's impossible to keep up with them. These questions are being asked in the open, and we do ourselves a disservice by pretending that being faithful to Christ and to the church and even to the pope demands that we don't say these things out loud. I know that we can become stigmatized very easily. I've done it. But the synod is, is really showing us that there's a problem. And it starts with the Pope. Where is his leadership? We have heretical cardinals taking seats at the table. And they're saying whatever they want to say. And they're saying it to the media. And it's being reported and it's being construed as, as the mind of the church. Now, far be it from me to be the only voice out there saying this. I've done this. I did it before it was cool. And I got attacked a lot for saying something's wrong. Something's going on with this pope. I, don't, I can't trust him, and, and it worries me. And, you know, we all know we've had bad popes in the past. But this guy's got a huge fan club. Mostly, it consists of people who are unfortunately, enemies of, of the teachings of the church, but it's not entirely that. Many, many, many faithful, mass-going Catholics love him. They think that he is fantastic. But doctrinally, there are so many problems, and I'm not going to get into them all. We could list them. They've been documented. But what's happening at the Synod, I think, is the biggest indicator we have heretics who are forming the agenda. We have a relatio, a document that came out, a mid-synod report that contained things that are heretical, that contained understandings of the Catholic faith that are unacceptable in the words of the Polish Bishops' Conference. And the important thing to remember 
is that changing church doctrine, it's not on the table. It's not going to happen. But it doesn't need to. What needs to happen, the only thing that needs to happen to cause massive and widespread damage is for these reckless bishops and cardinals to say the things that they are saying, to put the things they're putting into these documents and to thereby change the entire perception of the faithful and those outside the church of what's going on within it. I'm not the only one saying this. Cardinal Burke said that a statement from the Pope clarifying what's going on in the Synod is long overdue. He also said that he saw the statement broadcast from Cardinal Casper saying that things were moving in the right direction toward a change of of practice within the institution of marriage. And he said that within a few words, the 5,700,000 Italians who followed that statement in broadcast media were led to believe that the whole synod is marching down this path and that the church is on the cusp of changing her doctrine. It's not possible, he said, but you give them the impression and they'll begin living that way. And Cardinal Casper continues his onslaught just yesterday. He said that he believes that a growing majority of the Synod Fathers are in favor of his proposal to allow divorced and civilly remarried Catholics to receive Holy Communion. He's repeating, repeating, repeating. In the meanwhile, the report that came out, this relatio, it's being just trashed by anybody with an ounce of orthodoxy, including, if reports can be believed, Cardinal Mueller at the CDF. See, we're having a lot of I said that, I didn't say that going on. Casper has been making comments, and then he lies and says he didn't make them, and then the reporter comes out and has the audio, and then it's all about contextualizing and decontextualizing, and what did he really say, and what did he mean? And it's the same thing with Mueller. He was reported to have said that the Synod report is undignified, shameful, and completely wrong. And now he's out there backtracking, saying that that wasn't really what he said. Burke has been obviously more critical. I mentioned the Polish bishops' conference. You have what seems to be the token African bishop, since they are opposing these progressive agendas, at the Synod. Napier is the guy's name. He's from South Africa. Uh, South African cardinal, his name is Wilfred Napier. On Tuesday of this week, he denounced... According to Chiesa, an article by Sandra Magister, he denounced in biting words the effect of the prevarication carried out by Forte, Bruno Forte, Bishop Forte, by inserting those explosive paragraphs into the relatio. Those paragraphs um, having to do specifically with homosexuality. We can We can look at those, but I think let's get to what he said first. So Napier says that they put the putting these statements out in this document, which is an official church document, has put the church in an irredeemable position. There's no way out because now the message has gone out. This is what the Synod is saying. This is what the Catholic Church is saying. No matter how we try correcting that, 
whatever we say hereafter is going to be as if we're doing damage control. I'm quoting a bishop. This is not me. Actually, no, sorry, a cardinal. Cardinal Wilfred Napier. This is not my words. The president of Voice of the Family said that the Synod Relatio document is the worst official document in church history. We have bishops, 41 of whom stood up in protest against what was in the document. You have Cardinal Erdo uh, from Hungary, who his name is on this relatio because he's the one assigned to have written it, but he was railroaded by the guys that were assigned to help him. And he stood up and distanced himself from the report, saying that it shouldn't have been made public, but since it was, then the other opposing opinions should also be made public and and was met with resounding applause. The Pope didn't join in that applause. Neither did the undersecretaries of the Synod, including Fabene, Forte, Schönborn, and Maradiaga. Casper, for some reason, wasn't there. And Father Lombardi wound up conceding the point and said that the reports of the commission would be made public, which is kind of a big win for the good guys. Interestingly, it's been an unlikely source that has been one of the strongest, I think, and most needed voices and profound statements about what's happening in Rome right now. Father Dwight Longnecker, who is not always known for being on the right side of of orthodox issues in some of the things that he writes. Uh, There are things to criticize there, but I mean, sometimes he's solid. and, And this time, he came out swinging about what is going on and how he's embraced the message of the Pope, how he wants to have an open heart like Pope Francis has. He says, I want to show the attractiveness of Christ the radiant truth of the gospel, and the joy of the abundant life that Jesus brings to the world. I long to celebrate the sacraments with love, care, hope, joy, and compassion. I want to be the persona Christi, the image of God in the face of the Father, not only to my flock, but to all who I meet. I have heard the words of my Holy Father and taken them to heart. I sincerely want to be that kind of priest. However, I can only do this if the timeless truths of the Catholic faith are firmly defined and defended. The dogmas, doctrines, and disciplines of the Catholic faith are the tools of my trade. They provide the rules for engagement, the playbook for the game, the map for the journey, and the content for the mercy and compassion I wish to display. The historic teachings of the Catholic faith, founded on the teachings of Christ the Lord, revealed by divine inspiration and developed through the magisterium of the Catholic Church, provide the method for my mercy, the content for my compassion, and the only saving truths I have to share. This is teamwork, Holy Father. I can only do the job you want me to do if you do the job you have been called to do. With the greatest respect and love, please don't feel that it is your job to tinker with the timeless truths. If my job is to be compassionate, the compassionate pastor for those in the pew and beyond, then your job is to be the primary defender and definer of the faith. I can't do my job 
if you don't do yours. Yes, I know you want to inspire us to be that kind of compassionate pastor. But to be honest, I find that inspiration elsewhere. I remember meeting Mother Teresa of Calcutta and being inspired by her compassion. I am inspired by St. Damien of Molokai, St. Maximilian Kolbe, St. Isaac Jogues, and a host of other valiant and radiant souls. While your example of compassion, humility, and simplicity is stunning and attractive, your most important work is to define and defend the teachings of the Catholic Church so that together we can all proclaim it and live it with the compassion, mercy, and forgiveness we all agree is necessary. I know, continuing to read Father Longnecker, I know the Synod on the Family is an attempt to make the Church more compassionate and caring. But with respect, this is not best done at the Vatican or diocesan level, but on the parish level. I was taught that subsidiarity is a Catholic principle, that solutions to problems and ideas for initiatives are best taken within the local community. Compassion, mercy, and the struggle with family issues happens every day at the parish level. You know that from your own work on the front line as a priest and a bishop, at the Vatican level, the discussion is theoretical and theological, as it should be. If you try to tinker with these matters at the global level, it doesn't help. It makes life more confusing and frustrating for us at the local level. Here is an example. Twice in the last week, I have had to deal with Catholics in irregular marriages. One woman married outside the church and told me that she thought it was now okay for her to come to communion because... The Pope has changed all those old rules. Another man divorced his wife and is living with another woman. He also assured me very confidently that it was now fine for him to come to communion because Pope Francis has changed the rules. I know you mean well, Holy Father, and I admire and like you, but this process on which you have led us is not helping. Here is another example from my experience as a parish priest. A young couple came for marriage preparation. They do not practice their faith and are living together already as husband and wife. I welcomed them and listened to their story. I told them that it was good that they wanted to be married. I said we would help prepare them, not only for a Catholic wedding, but for a Catholic marriage. However, when I gently began a conversation about their irregular lifestyle, the girl began to pout and accuse me of being unwelcoming. Then she said, I thought with this new pope we would be welcomed. What she meant by this was, I expected Pope Francis's Catholic Church to condone cohabitation. You have been very good at giving us fatherly instruction. I have listened and learned. You have also asked for a frank debate on these matters. So that I can do my job, I respectfully ask you to do yours. I'll do my best to evangelize by being compassionate, welcoming, and merciful if you do your best to sharpen the tools I need for the job. Compassion without content is mere sentimentality. Mercy without truth is an empty gesture. Kindness without correction is cowardly. It's one of the best things that I have read about the debacle that is going on in Rome. My hat is off to Father Longnecker, for a solid, balanced, and well-considered critique. It needs to happen. We need to hear these voices. 
And like I said, we're hearing it from some people. We're hearing it from from Cardinal Burke. Maybe because he doesn't have much left to lose. I don't know. You know, he has been slowly backing the Pope into a corner here, saying, here's a, here's a quote. So he was asked, it seems evident that Cardinal Casper and those who speak in agreement with him claim that they have the support of the Pope on these positions which are heterodox. And he answers, this is true. The Pope named Cardinal Casper to the Synod and has let the debate go along this track. But as another Cardinal has said, the Pope has not given his pronouncement on all of this yet. I am awaiting his pronouncement, which is able to be only in continuity with the teaching given by the Church through her whole history, a teaching that has never changed because it cannot change. The next question that's asked asked of him is this. Some prelates who support the traditional doctrine say that if the Pope should make changes in that doctrine, they would support those changes. Is this not a contradiction? Cardinal Burke answers, Yes, it is a contradiction, because the pontiff is the vicar of Christ on earth, and therefore the chief servant of the truth of the faith. Knowing the teaching of Christ, I do not see how it is possible to deviate from that teaching with a doctrinal declaration or with a pastoral practice that ignores the truth. Where is Peter? He's letting this go on. He's letting it play out. He's letting the statements be leaked to the media and he's allowing Cardinal Casper to speak in his name. Cardinal Casper is a heretic. He has contradicted the words of Christ He is critical and opposed to the teachings of the church, traditional teachings on marriage and sexuality. He is a heretic. It's not my job to proclaim it. I'm not going to pursue it in the court of canon law. But I tell you what, he's a heretic by any definition that the church has ever laid out. Most simply, the definition of Thomas Aquinas, who said that it's anybody who corrupts the dogmas of Christ. This is the guy. And the Pope is letting him speak for him. And he's not correcting him. He's not making sure to let everybody know that no matter what crazy or dissenting opinions they hear coming out of the Synod in Rome, that's not what's going to happen. Because he won't let it happen, not on his watch. Pray for the Pope. We need to pray for the Pope. I I posted some, I think, really solid traditional prayers for the Pope um, on 1 Peter 5 this week. You can find them in the 1 Peter 5 blog uh, section of the website. We need to pray for him. Because if this continues along these lines, and if he doesn't do something to affirm these traditional teachings of marriage, if he allows the guys who he has given the authority to run this synod to run these teachings into the ground, and he doesn't take corrective action, I mean, it was St. Thomas More who argued that the silence, uh, that the maxim of the law is that silence gives consent, right? Well, speaking of 
St. Thomas More and of criticism of the Pope, let me paraphrase this martyr of the faith who died protecting Catholic marriage. I am the Pope's faithful servant, but God's first. There was a bishop and theologian at the Council of Trent by the name of Father Melchior Cano. He was a Dominican. And he said, Peter has no need of our lies or flattery. Those who blindly and indiscriminately defend every decision of the Supreme Pontiff are the very ones who do most to undermine the authority of the Holy See. They destroy instead of strengthening its foundations. We have come to a point in history and in the history of the Church where faithful Catholics believe it would seem that it's some sort of a sin to say that what the Pope is doing isn't right. He's not doing his job. He's not protecting the faith. And you don't have to change doctrine to change the belief of the, of the faithful. You don't have to change doctrine to change practice. Everybody who reads that relatio including homosexual groups who've been all over it because of the language that's used. I, I, should, I should read to you what it says. Probably the most troubling paragraph in the Relatio is paragraph 50 about homosexuals. It, it reads, Homosexuals have gifts and qualities to offer to the Christian community. Are we capable of providing for these people, guaranteeing them a place of fellowship in our communities? Oftentimes they want to encounter a church which offers them a welcoming home. Are our communities capable of this? Accepting and valuing their sexual orientation? Valuing their sexual orientation without compromising Catholic doctrine on the family and matrimony? There's another paragraph, paragraph 52. Without denying the moral problems associated with homosexual unions, there are instances where mutual assistance to the point of sacrifice is a valuable support in the lives of these persons. I mean, the, the, the church is always taught, and you don't see it present at all here, that the homosexual orientation itself is a grave moral defect. It is, a, it is a gravely disordered orientation. So despite the fact that a man or woman who has same-sex attraction may never act on those inclinations, that the inclinations themselves exist within the person, it creates an ontological crisis of sorts. It, it's an orientation towards something that is disordered. It does not fit the design that God gave to human sexuality. It does not fit the design that he gave to creation. And this has consequences and ramifications in the life of a person who suffers from this cross. And clearly, clearly there has to be some sort of pastoral approach to help those who, through no desire of their own, suffer from the affliction of same-sex attraction. It is an affliction. It is not a gift. It is not a gift, and it never will be. I can't imagine how difficult it is for those who have it 
to deal with it and to try to live Christ's teachings. But to treat it as something that is a gift, something that offers unique value. I mean, homosexuals have gifts and qualities to offer to the Christian community. What does that mean? Does that mean that there are gifts that stem from their orientation and that that's what's being offered to the community? Why would anyone say that homosexuals have gifts? All persons have gifts to offer to the Christian community, regardless of their orientation. The gifts that they have to offer stem from being created in the image and likeness of God. The gifts that they have to offer stem from their dignity as human persons. Their sexual orientation doesn't have anything to do with their gifts. If anything, it diminishes them. Whether you're straight and you struggle with lust, or whether you're homosexual and you struggle with those inclinations, I mean, sexuality is a gift within the context of marriage, but outside of it, it's most often a burden. Because we all have concupiscence and we're all, most of us, have a certain inclination to lust, especially men. So there's very deeply troubling things being said here. And there's no correction from the Roman pontiff, from Peter, from the vicar of Christ. He needs to come out and reaffirm what the church teaches. He has to. If he doesn't, and he lets this play out in the media the way that it is, which has already happened. I mean, the damage that has been done is astronomical. Already, people are seeing this as a revolution within church teaching. He could curtail that somewhat by having a humane vitae moment. Brian Williams wrote about that for 1 Peter 5 early this week. But the connection between what's happening now and what happened with humane vitae is incredibly close. However, in this case, it's worse. And the reason for that is because Pope Paul VI, when he released Humanae Vitae, essentially refuted more than a year of speculation in the media by usurpers within the church who were trying to change her teaching from the Pontifical Commission on Birth Control and the leaked reports to the media and the press conferences and everything else that led Catholics to believe that the practice had already changed and so they all began living that way. Not all, but most. And then Pope Paul VI contradicted them. Here's Humanae Vitae. It's not what you expected. I'm reaffirming what the church teaches. But in this case, if Pope Francis fails to have his Humanae Vitae moment, if he fails to act as Peter instead of whatever his own personal agenda in this seems to be, and he's going to at least give the appearance, and appearances matter, even if it's not an actuality, he's going to give the appearance that he condones the Casper position, the Forte position, the Maradiaga position, the Schönborn position, which is terrifying when people, when you consider the fact that Cardinal Schönborn was always seen as, as an Orthodox member of the, of the Episcopacy. 
if the Pope doesn't make a statement, if this is allowed to drag on for another year, you know what the outcome is. Massive loss of faith. Massive change in practice in a church where already over 90% of Catholics contracept. Where more than half of Catholics depending on which data you look at, or close to half, if you look at the more conservative data, don't even believe in the real presence in the Eucharist. You're going to have people who are living in objective states of mortal sin coming and receiving the Eucharist sacrilegiously, en masse. It's happening now already to some extent, but what Father Longnecker talked about from a pastoral standpoint, that's what pastoral solutions are supposed to deal with. They're supposed to deal with the complexities of how does a pastor deal with these people who come and say, we don't really want to follow church teaching, but we want to do this thing within the church. What he's being confronted with is what priests around the country and around the world, if they are not already being confronted with because of the news coming out of Rome, they will be confronted with very, very soon. People believing that the church's teaching has changed, even though it hasn't. Just like Humana Vitae reiterated the church's teaching and the church teaching didn't change, the vast majority of Catholics began to believe it, had and started acting as though everything was different and contraception was let out of the box and it's led to everything else because without Catholics holding on to the institution of the family the fabric of western civilization disintegrated it's why we have all the problems we have from same sex marriage to the explosion in, in sexual perversion and pornography and you know down to the, the increased uh arguments in favor of, of polygamy uh, to even now you're seeing a normalization of, of pedophilia. It all starts with, with that fundamental disconnect, that divorce of, of the human sexual act from procreation. If, if procreation within a loving marriage between a man and a woman is not the only appropriate context for the sexual act, an openness to life, even if it doesn't happen, that openness to life and to God's will and to accepting that child and to educating and raising that child in the faith, if that is not the fundamental basis for our understanding of human sexuality, then everything else is on the table. If you are a married couple and you contracept routinely and you don't want to have children, how can you turn around and tell the homosexual couple that they can't also have sterile sex? You can't, you can't make the argument. You can try to make an argument from nature, but you're, you're cut off the past because nature orients itself toward sex leading to babies. And you've already cut off nature. You've said, no, I'm not open to that. I'm not going to participate with God's design for human sexuality. We lose this war on contraception. And I am telling you that the Synod in Rome right now is reaping the harvest that was planted in 1967, leading up to the release of Humanae Vitae. They didn't win. For all of his faults, Pope Paul VI planted a flag and drew a line in the sand and said, none shall pass. But now... We have a moment where it looks like that's all being exploited. The family has been destroyed by contraception. And now 
we're willing to let that be part of the church. That destruction of the family will institutionalize that. We'll adopt the orthodox practice of equinomia. We'll let people live in adulterous relationships and receive communion. And then the slippery slope from there is, well, then we have to let practicing homosexuals receive communion because, you know, they did this little penance. And yeah, it doesn't matter that they're continuing to live in sin. They have a spirit of penance. It's gradualism. They're on their way. We know that Christ and his church will prevail in the end. But this is a moment of darkness. This is a crisis of nearly unprecedented proportions. Arianism is the only thing that's been worse. But this has only just started. My fear has much to do with the hope and the faith that people put into the person of the Pope. We need to back up a little bit and look at the fact that the, the church is bigger than any single papacy, that the traditional teachings of the church are not impinged upon the interpretation of the man who's currently sitting on the Petrine throne. There's a reason why we look backwards in the church. We look to build upon doctrine that is already established upon teachings that are perennial because we've had bad popes we've had two popes who have actually embraced heresy one was posthumously condemned honorius the first and the only <laughs> you notice people don't end up adopting the name of heretic popes and the second was john the 22nd who preached heresy in his homilies but never in any official church documents but it's happened we've had heretic popes the body of doctrine, the census fidei, those are the things that have to be preserved. And I'm telling you this because if something happens on Sunday that you can't explain, and we have no reason yet to believe that Pope Francis is going to put his foot down and put a stop to the craziness. He has given no indication so far, despite the damage that's currently being done. Miracles can happen. And we have to pray for that. But if he allows this to happen, if he allows this to be open-ended for another year leading to the, the 2015 conclusion to this Senate, if the post-synodal exhortation contains similarly destructive language, there are going to be people, people that you know, who are going to lose their faith because they have, unfortunately, entirely too much faith in the person of the Pope and not enough faith in the institution of the church. The limitations on papal infallibility are critical to understand. The fact that popes can and have been heretics, critical to understand. The fact that the Holy Spirit does not choose the pope, despite the fact that you will hear that all the time, critical to understand. Sometimes we get a bad egg. Sometimes we get a rotten apple. You can love Pope Francis to your heart's content, but doctrinally, there are serious problems with this papacy and with the activities that it is allowing to continue under its watch and in its name. So rein in a little bit your heart if you can. If you're staking everything on the fact that the Pope is going to come out 
and trick everybody and say some profoundly moving you know, recitation of, of long-standing church doctrine that, that confounds those who sought to co-opt this synod, I fear that you may be gravely disappointed. And, and disappointment at that level has led some to, to apostasy. Do not, whatever happens, do not lose your faith. It is Christ's church. God is working within the church. He is in the details, and his will will be made clear. It will be made clear. I promise you this. And we're not going to, with human eyes, be able to see our way out of this. We're not going to see the conclusion. It's going to look really bad and really dark. I think that's my personal take. But there will be a way out. There always is. God is allowing his church to suffer chastisement. Cardinal Burke in, in yet another interview said something about, you know, if, if this chastisement that's coming upon the church, you know, if he looks at it on a personal level, it's because he needs purification. I don't want to mangle it. I'll read you the quote. In his interview with Il Foglio, the last question that was asked of him was this. And it's, it's actually more of a statement than a question. It was, it is becoming difficult not to think of this as a time of chastisement. His answer, I think about this first of all concerning myself. If I am suffering at this time because of the situation in the church, I think that the Lord is telling me that I have need of purification. And I also think that if the suffering is so widespread, this means that the whole church is need in purification. But this is not because of a God who is waiting only to punish us. This is because of our own sins. If in some way we have betrayed doctrine, moral teaching, or the liturgy, it follows inevitably that we will undergo a suffering that purifies us to put us back again on the narrow way. Everything you need to know to prepare yourself for whatever happens on Sunday is in that statement. Trust that God's will is always what is best for us, even when it hurts, even when it's confounding, even when it looks like hope is lost. We've all experienced this in our own lives. We just sometimes can't see the way out. And that actually is advantageous to our relationship with God because what happens when we're desperate? What happens when we can't find a solution to the suffering that we face? We turn to him. We turn to him. We pray more. We love more. We have deeper faith. We have a fuller sense of trust. He leads us out of the valley of the shadow of death. He wants us to depend on him. He wants us to see that no situation, however impossible it looks, is impossible for him. But we have to hold it together long enough to get to the other side. This, my friends, is an opportunity for hope and for optimism. The church is in desperate need of reform. 
I am not in a position where I can continue to pretend, not that I've ever been very good at it, but I cannot pretend that the church is not in desperate need of reform. This is not the new springtime. It isn't. That hasn't come yet. This is not the best moment in the church. Far from it. Bishop Schneider, who I always quote, said it best, we are in the fourth great crisis of the church. We may well be entering into the moment of chastisement that so many Catholic prophets and even apparitions of our Blessed Mother have warned us was coming. Buckle up. Get ready. Have your prayers handy because the spiritual battle is on hard. And if you are defending the church and its traditional teachings, you will be tempted. You will fight with your loved ones. You will struggle with your faith. You will feel overwhelmed and exhausted and emotionally drained. You will be tempted with thoughts of despair. You may experience even stranger circumstances. I'm not alone in having experienced some odd odd things that have happened that well they're difficult to explain unless you believe in the supernatural battle that we're fighting this is an exciting time to be alive god has chosen us to be the the faithful of this moment and that means he's giving us the graces we're not it's not because we're special he for whatever reason, has given us the gifts and the temperaments and the personalities that we have, and he is giving us the graces to be the saints, literally the saints, that will survive this, that will bring our children through it, that will enter into a new era in the church. I don't know how we can't see this as a great adventure. It is exciting, exciting stuff. So I'm going to once again make the recommendations before I close. Stay in a state of grace. Get to confession as often as you can. Particularly, and I don't want to be paranoid, but if, if a schism comes, as many, many bishops and priests and laity alike think is likely to happen over these issues of contention. It could get pretty dicey for a while. It could get difficult to get some of the sacraments. We've got to find the the priests who are faithful and stick with them. But get to confession as often as you can. Go once a week if you can do it. At least, at least twice a month. Don't wait longer. Even if you've only got minor things, you need the graces of the sacrament. It's not just about forgiveness. It's about the graces. It's about fortitude. It's about clarity. It's about cleanliness of heart so that you can see clearly. Do not forget to pray your prayers. And if you haven't looked into it yet, talk to your spiritual director or your confessor or a priest that you trust and look into the Auxilium Christianorum, which will help to protect you against the demonic forces that are in play in the world right now. Pray Compline and and the Divine Office if you can, but at least Compline, they make great night prayers. Pray your rosary every day. I know I hit on this all the time, and I forget to do it too, but to the best of your ability, that is one of the strongest prayers we have, one of the greatest weapons we have. And just overall pray 
will pray for the Holy Father, the prayers that I mentioned. I will try to link to them in the show notes. There's no way I can link to all the stuff I've been referencing because the information is coming too fast and furious to put all the links in. You're going to have to do your own homework. Rorate Chaley has been doing a great job. Look there if you want more information, but it's all over the web. I mean, you've just got to keep your eyes peeled uh, and kind of follow. Pewsitter.com is a great place to go. They link to everything that's going on that's worth reading about. Um, Pray for the Pope. Pray for courage. Pray for wisdom. Pray for guidance. We're going to get through this, but the water may get dicey. We have to trust that Christ can calm the storm because he will. He will. He will. In our next segment, Elliot Bogus pinch hits for me and interviews Fred Harris about some topics relating to conversion and the perspective of the Eastern Orthodox on all this stuff that's going on. And I have to thank Elliot for doing that because my hell week made it impossible for me to schedule time for an interview. So it's going to be a longer podcast than usual, but I think it'll be worth your time. I hope you look forward to that interview like I do coming up next. You're listening to the one Peter five podcast. Greetings, people of the earth. This is Elliot Bogus with you again for the 1 Peter 5 podcast. Tonight, I am standing in for Steve. He may make some appearances here in other segments of the show. But uh, tonight, since we already realized nobody listens to these podcasts, he just threw it to me, and he can get more sleep. No, but uh, also tonight, I am joined by Fred Harris. Fred Harris is a convert to the church, and he's going to be sharing his experience, uh, how he came into the church, as well as given his background, you know, his, his spiritual journey, maybe a different perspective on some of the things that are being brooded about in, at the Synod, some ideas um, that maybe sound more ecumenical towards the Eastern Orthodox Church, or, or maybe they don't. Maybe that idea is just being um, thrown around. Maybe that's not how the lived experience of of uh, Eastern Orthodox goes in on a parish level, you know. And again, he's not he's not speaking as an Eastern Orthodox person, but just he wants to share some of his experience. You know how to how does the remarriage issue surface on a parish level? Does contraception get talked about or dealt with uh, among Eastern Orthodox? Okay, so I think that'll be an interesting kind of. Um, oblique perspective on some of the chaos or did I say chaos I mean some of the uh, mess or or whatever you want to call it just the the fervor coming out of the synod but before we get into the meat and potatoes um, I want to start with an icebreaker and boy let me tell you it is an icebreaker because I'm down here in Florida and it is getting cold <laughs> I think tonight it might reach 68 Fahrenheit word no, but um, the game we're going to play is called Maoist or Modernist, okay? Now, Fred, I've prepped you on this game, and so how would Am you... Am I allowed explain? to speak? You are, sure. I can just jump in at you any can, time? You can okay. jump in. So how would you... Very good. You know how to... You ready to play this game? How I'm would you ready. Explain it, explain yeah. it for the, the, the listening audience. Sure. So Elliot has a copy of Mao's Little Red Book, 
literally. And, uh, literally in his hand. And he's going to read, perhaps, a quotation from Mao's Little Red Book, or it could be a modernist theologian in the Catholic Church. And the game is, we're supposed to decide whether we're hearing the words of Mao, the teaching of Mao, or the teaching of a modernist Catholic. Right. Sounds like a good time. It's fun, you know. Um, And again, it's it's not necessarily, some of these quotations I might pick are not actually Maoist, but I do want to use, I want to start with um, Mao's Little Red Book, and it doesn't necessarily mean the other, you know, Catholic writer is really a modernist. That word gets thrown around, but it's just a humorous way of saying, Strange bedfellows. You know, at what point does <laughs> right. does Catholic speech and and theology get so? Does the tone get changed so much that that really it starts to change the substance? Uh, you know, and so anyway, we're going to begin with either Mao or some other Catholic speaker. And because I know you all are clever, I have paper resources, both Catholic and Maoist and and other, so that if you hear me. You know, riffling through pages, you can't, there's no giveaways, okay? So let's see here. Oh, and, and Fred's going to, he's gonna, he's gonna be our, our contestant, and you can play along at home, okay? So here we go. For $100, Maoist or Modernist? The God who is enthroned over the world and history as a changeless being is an offense to man. One must deny him for man's sake because he claims for himself the dignity and honor that belong by right to man. We must resist this God, however, not only for man's sake, but also for the sake of the absolute. He is not the true God at all, but rather a wretched idol. (laughs) I'm sorry, I probably should... (laughs) It's it's, it's not easy. If we call such a being God, then for the sake of the absolute we must become absolute atheists. Such a God springs from a rigid worldview... He is the guarantor of the status quo and the enemy of the new. Okay, Fred, take your guess. Well, Elliot, I'm going to go with Mao. <laughs> I'm afraid you're wrong. No. You're wrong. That was, no, you're, no. That was actually the prelate of the hour, none other than Cardinal. Well, at the time he wasn't a cardinal, but that was Walter Casper. 1967, oh, cool. I believe. Whoa, whoa. Saying who knows what. Anyway, that was one wrong. I get the $100. Now, um, round two. No, are you kidding? No, I'm not kidding at all. That's oh, a direct quotation, I think, from a 1967 book. Um, okay, like let's see that. here. Let's see here. It's probably mistranslated. Oh, certainly. Yeah. Uh, especially if he was writing in Italian. Um, <laughs> Okay, now again, this like game I said, harder than I thought it, it is. It is. And sometimes <laughs> it's almost as hard as being Catholic these days. But um, <laughs> now again, part of the game is there can't be any easy giveaways. Okay, so for example, if the if the um, passage says Christians or um, maybe directly Jesus, I'll either remove that that giveaway oh, okay. expression or I'll just sort of use a very generic term. Okay. So anyway, next <sighs> passage. Rifling through my various documents. Okay, for $200, Maoist or Modernist? There are not a few people who are irresponsible in their lives, preferring the light to the heavy, shoving the heavy loads onto others, and choosing the easy ones for themselves. At every turn, they think of themselves before others. 
when they make some small contribution, they swell with pride and brag about it for fear that others will not know. They feel no warmth towards others and the people, but they are cold and different and apathetic. In fact, such people are not among us, or at least they, can be not, they cannot be counted as truly belonging to us. Maoist or modernist? I'm going to guess Maoist. Ding, ding, ding. Very right. good. That is Mao. What was the giveaway for you? Well, I just thought the kind of the collective nature of the statement, even though that could go either way, it mm -hmm. just struck me as as Maoist. Okay. Fair enough. Sure. And the word people in there. Right. <laughs> well, the people are, are, are being talked about a lot these days. You know, right. No, that's true. The people. Um, there's always the people. But let's see. Let's And we'll try a final one here. Um, here we go. Okay, for $500, Maoist or Modernist? The globalization of human activity cannot occur unless individual men and their associations cultivate in themselves the moral and social virtues and promote them in society. Thus, with the needed help of the absolute, excuse me, I'm sorry, thus, with the proper help, men who are truly new and artisans of a new humanity can be forthcoming. Maoist or modernist? I'm going to go with modernist. No, I'm afraid not. I'm going to. Oh. You want me to reread that? Well, I thought the globalization line was a giveaway. Well, I used the word. It is a little anachronistic, but the original passage says basically that the the increasing harmonization and integration of of uh, human resources and all that. So I mean, oh, that's, see, that word is globalization. But the point is, the globalization of human activity cannot occur unless individual men and their associations cultivate in themselves the moral and social virtues and promote them in society. And then, with the proper help, men who are truly new and artisans of a new humanity can be forthcoming. So that is not a Maoist. Who said it? That was actually Gaudium et Space, a, mm, an official conciliar document wow. of the church. So anyway, it's always fun. And again, that's not saying that, um, you know, obviously the scriptures talk about we're made new in Christ. It's just a question of how is the word new being used? You know, is it is it renewed in baptism? And then after that, what does the Bible really talk about we're made new? So that's the trick, is is it really behooves us to speak clearly about the faith, because it's very easy for some of these buzzwords to just get twisted around and misinterpreted. But um, anyway... Wait, so that was that was a modernist? That was, that was Gaudium in space? Yeah, and I mean, it was however it sounds. I thought that's what I guessed. No, you said Maoist. Oh, did I? Because okay. I, I threw you off with the word globalization. But um, okay. But hey, who am I to judge? You know. <laughs> so all right. So that was fun. I think I, I had the net winnings. But um, now I want to just get into Fred your your you know journey home as it's right. as it's called. So I'm going to give you the floor and wow. Sure. Right. I'll I'll just skip over the. I mean, most of your listeners will probably just be curious about how I went from Orthodox to Catholic because I wasn't raised in an Orthodox home, Orthodox Eastern Orthodox home. I was raised in a Evangelical Protestant home. Well, tell um, what you like because actually I think there there's a lot of overlap, obviously, between Eastern Orthodoxy and Roman Catholic and just Catholicism. Right. And so, you know, actually, a question I'll put to you is which jump or shift do you think was actually 
larger or more significant or more difficult. Um, oh, so, okay, you see what I mean? Sure. And so you yeah. don't have to tell everything, but I'm saying I think that people would would really like to see how um, the whole process worked. So go ahead. Okay. Well, I I was raised in a very devout home for which I am eternally grateful, and um, a pretty a pretty literate home. My uh, books were I mean tons of bookshelves in my home. Uh, parents always kind of had a book in their hand, and so that's what I grew up with. And so I started reading at a young age, and for whatever reason, I started getting into historical theology in high school. And kind of as a as an evangelical Protestant, if you're going to do historical theology, the the kind of obvious direction you go is to the reformers, right? So I started reading Luther and Calvin. Um, in high school and was eating it up. Thought it was pretty awesome. And, uh, started to visit churches as well. And, cause I was, I was raised in a evangelical Protestant, as I said, evangelical Protestant home, but specifically a PCUSA, Presbyterian Church, United States of America, which is the more, uh, kind of mainline Protestant denomination of Presbyterianism in America. And I, uh, Anyway, where was I going with that? I started uh, visiting churches just out of curiosity because I, well, there was a Reformation. Why was there a Reformation? There's different denominations. What do these mean, et cetera, et cetera. So I started visiting churches, and <clears throat> I remember visiting a Catholic church, and I remember visiting an Orthodox church uh, when I was 16 years old. And I'll tell you, as you're probably aware, I was um, was somebody with kind of no exposure, no real knowledge of, of um, anything pre-Reformation tradition or liturgy or any sort of non-Protestant expression of worship, I was, I was very much taken by the experience of Orthodox worship, right? The Byzantine rite was just, was just beautiful. Mm-hmm. And, and I, and I knew, and I knew that, uh, there was something really profound going on there. Uh, whereas, whereas the mass, honestly, I'll just be honest, I didn't really experience that. It was a typical no, uh, Novus Ordo mass in, um, in the hometown that I grew up in. And it wasn't the same. And so I was kind of immediately on an intuitive level kind of drawn to orthodoxy. And so I began to kind of, anyway, long story short, sorry, I'm already going on too long. I, I eventually decided to become orthodox, uh, after about five years or so of trying to be maintain um, my uh, Protestant heritage and what it meant to be a Protestant but also being attracted to the pre-Reformation tradition mm. and um, and I became Orthodox um, and was involved in a very very uh, vibrant Antiochian Orthodox parish in my hometown okay uh, primarily convert yeah uh-huh. sure okay you said Antiochian parish. Right. Could you um, explain just a little bit some of the uh, what does that term mean? Sure. So the the um, canonical situation of orthodoxy in America is abnormal. It's not as it should be, right? So technically, the way it should work according to the canons of the Orthodox Church is there's supposed to be one bishop in uh, one per per city, right? Basically, as the Catholic Church has it, but uh, Based uh, primarily on historical circumstances and historical contingencies, there are a number of um, Orthodox churches from um, 
various uh, ethnic um, backgrounds. So, for instance, we have like the Greek Orthodox Church in America, the Russian Orthodox Church in America. Well, there's two Russian Orthodox churches in America. There's there's um, the Antiochian Orthodox Church, which is what I was involved in, which is uh, connected to the uh, uh, church in Syria, right? Mm-hmm. And and etc. So that's that's why there's a uh, these various churches that all are called Orthodox, and they all have the same liturgy, and they all you know, ostensibly hold to the same beliefs, but there, there's basically um, uh, um, broken up among ethnic um, jurisdictions, mm-hmm. as they're called. And now, that is, would that be parallel to the different rites in the Catholic Church? Do you think? Well, no. You said the same liturgy. Is it all this, the the liturgy of Saint John Chrysostom? Or? For the for the most part, there's um, the Antiochian Archdiocese and the uh, Russian Orthodox Church outside Russia, Rokor as it's called, has mm-hmm. has a Western rite, which is like analogous to the Catholic Church's Eastern rite, hmm. where they use like Western liturgy and but they're supposedly Orthodox, and but they're very small and guitars. <laughs> No, it re- I just want to actually. I want to ask about that. Like, we hear about clown masses, you know, sort of like Sasquatch, even though clown masses are real. I've never, I've never seen a clown mass. By no, the way, the internet is a big place. I, I trust Google. No, but um, what is because here's the thing. I mean, you know, to Protestants, they they look at people who become Catholic and they rag on the the bells and smells. Oh, you're just in it for that aesthetic right, sort of right. ambiance, you know. Yeah, and little thing. Oh. <laughs> right. Oh, whew. and then you know the near and the far, but then something I found because actually when I was entering the church, I, I did very seriously consider becoming Eastern Orthodox, um, right. or or uh, at least becoming an Eastern Rite Catholic. Um, anyway, but I found this thing that there's different levels of liturgical either snobbery or or sort of mystification that. You know, Protestants are, are want to say that people interested in the Catholic Church are just doing it for the smells and bells, for some yeah. kind of pseudo-spiritual kind of ambiance, you know. Well, same thing, that um, there's this there's a lot of illusion about how pristine and just absolutely um, sublime every experience of, of Eastern Orthodox worship is. And I'm just curious, what is maybe the worst... Eastern Orthodox experience you've ever had, or really have have you were were you spared of such things? Do you think mm, what in you terms think about of that? worship? Yeah, I mean, experience maybe not honestly, guitars and bongos, but yeah, no, the worst I ever experienced was just bad singing, mm, yeah, <laughs> like bad chanting. You know, I've been to some, a few liturgies. Some Greek that can be right. Some Greek guy had just a terrible voice, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's the worst. I mean, they don't mess with the they don't mess with the with the actual texts, you know, mm-hmm. which is more power to them. That's as it should be, you know? Right, and that's something that I want to... That's that's what I mean about the, the sort of oblique perspective you have. I mean, when you were Orthodox, how, or or if it came up, I mean, how was, say, the liturgical revolution or whatever renewal you want to call it in the Catholic Church, how was it viewed? How was it discussed? I mean... Oh, I mean, we, we ripped into the Catholic Church all the time. Yeah, actually, I had an ex-priest. No joke, I had an ex-priest in my um, uh, in my parish, and uh, uh, ex-priest. Sorry, ex-Catholic priest uh-huh. who became Orthodox. Um, now I think there's a, more of a backstory there that 
because uh, he's married, so I don't know how that happened. Maybe mm-hmm. he was laicized at mm-hmm. some point, and then, but he became Orthodox, and his wife stayed Catholic. But he just lamented, lamented the liturgical changes, you know, after the um, reform of Paul the Sixth, mm. you know, and he just so was he just couldn't still, take it, just distraught over those things. But but I mean, basically, he you know he came from a from a perspective of just lament, lamentation, whereas mm. kind of we. We used it as kind of a bludgeon by mm-hmm. which to to beat the Catholics over the head and be like, Catholics are so dumb. How can they, you know, have such stupid liturgies, banal, etc. Yeah. Right? As a, a triumphalism, it's basically triumphalism. Mm-hmm. You know. But um, well, fair, I mean, fair enough. I mean, you know, triumphalism is easy to throw around. But I'm saying that did it? How do I put this? I mean. The Orthodox believe the Church is guilty of numerous uh, heretical deviations and canonical violate, you know, uh, outrages and all sorts of stuff. Was the Novus Ordo Missae seen as yet another of Rome's mm. errors and defections and just outrages? That's what I mean. Not just that there were abu- because you know this is something I, I feel strongly about is that I feel bad for Sancta Sanctum Concilium because right. when you read it, it's actually quite a pretty solid document. I mean, it was the first one that opened the, to open the council and it calls for it calls for Latin, it calls for Gregorian chant. It calls for an absolute conservatism about, you know, adaptations, local adaptations. Um, it never called for a multiplicity of of uh, canons and whatnot. So, my whole th- point is let's at least get our worship in the church back to Sacrosanctum Concilium at least and then go from yeah. there. You know, Amen. Amen. And, and so what I'm saying is that were the when when you were among them, were the Orthodox able to differentiate between just badly done Novus Ordo versus was was there maybe an an idea that no, even the Romans should not have messed with their one thousand year old mm. liturgical tradition because really the Roman rite, the Roman canon, is the oldest canon in the entire in all Christian worship. I mean, even right. you know so. I'm just curious, was it seen as a cheap shot to mock clown, so to speak, clown masters, oh, sure. or was tampering with the liturgical tradition seen as yet another defection from the tradition? That's right. my question. Well, so. there was, there was a, I think it was, there was probably a spectrum of, of opinions, because I had mm-hmm. one guy in my parish who, for instance, thought that even the, the Tridentine Mass, mm-hmm. the Vetus Ordo, was itself defective, right, and wow. was... Um, a sign that that in itself was a sign of uh, you know the Latin heresies or whatever. Mm. Um, so there was that, but then there was also people that were just kind of sad. You know, why why has the why has the Catholic Church uh, basically mm. forsaken forsaken its treasure? Interesting, you know, its greatest treasure, the Mass. Because I mean, that's the thing is the Orthodox understand how important worship is. Right, it's everything. I mean, that's really what holds the church together. I'd say it's not even really the ecumenical councils. Mm-hmm, it's, mm-hmm. it's it's not even really dogmas. It's just the worship. You know, mm-hmm. I mean, it's the old. I'm sure you hear this phrase thrown around all the time: "lex serandi, lex credendi." Right, but the way the the law of worship is a law of belief. You know, but but that's really true in orthodoxy. I mean, it's everything else can go, including as I'm sure we'll discuss it at some point today. Everything else can go, including moral issues. Right, hmm. but well, I should, I'm, this is probably I'm exaggerating, but you know what I'm saying. There's very much a you're saying the sentiment on the ground is do not mess with the worship. Exactly, exactly, right. right? Because you know that's the thing. 
Liturgy means the the work of the people. And it is the way, it is the chief way. And, and again, Sancro Sanctum Concilium states all this beautifully, that the entire summit of the Christian life is in liturgical worship, is in the Mass. You know, that is how the people of God uh, cooperate, you know, synergy. They, that's how they cooperate with the Holy Spirit, with the Trinity. And um, to tamper with that is, I mean, it's no small potatoes. And so I think I, I, that is something that I've always, you know, honored about the Eastern tradition, and I mean also in the Eastern rites in the Church, but also the Eastern Orthodox, that <clears throat> to tamper or sort of trivialize the liturgy is to trivialize the faith. And I think that's something we've, we've completely lost in the West, or you know, in the in the Catholic Church, really. That well, in the the Latin rite. So I think that's interesting. Um, so anyway, you, after five years of sort of hanging on to Protestantism, right. you entered the Orthodox Church. Yes. And, um, okay, so then let's let's kind of speed up to, and you were, how long were you in the, the Orthodox Church? I um, actually entered the Catholic Church, or I made the decision to enter the Catholic Church on, uh, and this was, uh, I'd say, a small kind of, sign that I was on the right direction but or on the right path but I entered I made the decision to enter the church on the feast of Saints Peter and Paul mm. and I didn't know that at the day on that day of this last year so that was that February um no not this last year it, this was right this when, how long has Benedict been enough or Benedict this was when Benedict was still pope or he had just made the well, decision February I think 13th was when he announced his application, okay. maybe the fourteenth Valentine's Day. I don't know. And so the twenty second is the twenty second is ah. the feast feast of Saint okay. Saints Peter and Paul. Or no, that's the, no. Excuse me, that's the feast of the uh, the chair of Saint Peter. I apologize. That's what I meant to say. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. But anyway, so I, it's been it's been um, about a year and a half now that I've been in the church. Okay, so right, you were Orthodox. Uh -huh. Sorry, I, I basically entered as. Um, Francis became Pope. That's mm -hmm. basically when I when I joined the church. Mm -hmm. Sure. And you had been Orthodox for how long? For six years. Six years, all right. in the same parish. That's correct. Wow, that's good. That's nice. And um, okay, so like I said, I think something that would be interesting is going from actually devout Protestant to Eastern Orthodox. I mean, that's a big jump because it's one thing to be sort of a, a lukewarm, clueless cultural. Christian, Protestant, whatever, and right. and find the depths of the tradition and embrace that. Um, but you were you you had lived you'd grown up as an actually self aware you know um, committed Protestant. And you through various steps you intentionally you you of a free will you entered the Orthodox Church, and then you felt drawn into the Catholic Church. And I'm just curious, you know, which um, transition was either harder or more uh, significant in your mind, that kind of thing. Yeah. Oh, there's no doubt that it was the transition from Protestant to Orthodox. Mm -hmm. The transition from Orthodox to Catholic was essentially seamless. Um, that basically my prayer life didn't change much. I mean, basically I picked up a, um, I started praying the rosary. That was new. Mm -hmm. Um and I and I started um I picked up the little office of our lady and started praying, you know, either matins or vespers, you know, in the morning or the evening. It's a great but resource. That, it's totally a great resource. I love it. But um 
that was and that replaced my old uh, kind of orthodox way of praying i had a prayer book as an orthodox and so i got another prayer book as a catholic and i just basically kept doing the same thing and going to mass now instead of going to the divine liturgy and mm-hmm. um that was fine okay so it, it it really was a quantum leap into the entire traditional form of christianity because i mean as opposed to sola scriptura where tradition became a an entire canon of belief and then being orthodox it was sort of i mean did you did you feel it was sort of the next lot after a while you felt this is the next logical step is that you know if i embrace tradition if i embrace the real presence uh, you know in the eucharist if i embrace the holy orders and and all these these sacraments and and apostolic succession then well it just it just points to Roman, you know, or at least Catholicism, or was there some kind of uh, make or break issue that I mean, what, 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 what chart? I mean, you surely you were happy as an Orthodox. What, what mm. kind of got you out of it? Yeah. Well, um, there were a number of issues. I was there, were probably eight or nine big, relatively big issues that kind of presented a cumulative case that that for why it essentially decided to become Catholic. Um, mm-hmm. One is one is that the Orthodox surfaces obviously they're they're so stunningly beautiful, but they always were exotically beautiful, right? Mm-hmm. Um, they were beautiful in a way that other foreign or Oriental things are beautiful, right? Um, but and and God is there, God is present, so there's a transcendent beauty, but it's still mediated through a culture that was foreign to me, either Greek or or Arab uh. or Russian, which is just kind of weird, right? Uh. Um, and so that was kind of hard. Um, I mean, that's that's obviously not like a, a solid doctrinal reason to become mm-hmm. Catholic. But mm-hmm. I, I guess I guess like the big doctrinal issues were. So I think based on a traditionalist Orthodox ecclesiology, mm-hmm. uh, which I believe to probably be the most consistent, um, Orthodoxy can't really account for the manifest holiness in the lives of post-schism Western saints. Mm-hmm. Um, Right, because the, right. the Roman Catholic Church is heretical and in schism, and yeah. therefore does not possess a valid priesthood or valid sacraments. Right, right. and that really just honestly began to really grate on me as I began mm-hmm. to read about the lives of post-Western saints, schism, post-schism Western saints mm-hmm. like Padre Pio in in mm-hmm. in particular. Right, sure. Um, and and I just couldn't I just couldn't believe that they didn't have a Eucharist. Now, obviously, that's there are certainly Orthodox that believe that the, the, the Roman Catholic Church has a valid priesthood, mm-hmm. but I don't know if they're being consistent with the kind of ecclesiology of the fathers. Mm-hmm. That so I I think that 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 so that was one thing that kind of rubbed rubbed me the wrong way, graded on me. Um, I mean, what else? What else was there? Uh, another big one was like there's. Ever since the schism, the Orthodox Church has stopped acting like the acting like the Church in one uh, remarkably glaring way. So, for instance, there's been no ecumenical councils, right, mm-hmm. since the schism. And I know that there are plausible historical reasons for that. For instance, like the the Turkish hegemony, mm-hmm. right? But but it's still it's well it's odd, right? I mean, for a thousand years, you haven't had an ecumenical council. Yeah, you know. Uh, what is it? Correlation is not causation, but right. Exactly. If suddenly and you you separate yourself from Rome, exactly. 
and then you find the Orthodox, you know, uh, what are they called? Pet- petarchs or Petra? Patriarchs? Petarchy. Well, patriarchs, but there's Patriarch another one. Pen- Pentarchy, yeah. Well, if you right. find basically the, the Orthodox constellation, kind of, I mean, r- roughly treading water, you know, and I think I, I detected that too when I was considering converting. I, I found that part, part of the reason there's this, this almost fetish, fetish-like obsession with cons- the, the total conformity with tradition in the Orthodox Church is because that's all they've got. Right, right. Like they, they, they are sort of trapped in amber in some ways. And yeah. the beautiful thing is that all that's trapped in, in suspended animation, so to speak, is they're valid sacraments, valid priesthood. So that people are receiving divine grace. But it, it was a strange thing that really suddenly that after the, the schism, the Orthodox Church just can't find a center Mm-hmm. To act, but you know, all these these spokes in the wheel are all akimbo. There's no center where the wheel can keep rolling forward. Um, but anyway, continue. So there was that, um, and that kind of leads into papal primacy, right? So, or uh, the under the orthodox understanding of the papacy. So, and I basically realized that there isn't a consistent understanding of the papacy, right? Um, or primacy for that matter, right? So, um. You can see this actually today, uh, in the way that the, uh, in the way that the Patriarchate of Moscow and the Patriarchate of Constantinople are at loggerheads, right? I don't know if you've been following that, but it's been going, I mean, it's been going on for over a hundred years. How's that? Elaborate a little bit? Oh, just, just that basically here's what it comes down to. The Patriarchate of Constantinople has a primacy that's canonical, right? Mm-hmm. So the church is always, obviously, as you probably know, or as you do know, that the church has always understood that the, that the Roman church, Roman Catholic church, the church of Rome, had ecclesiological, ecclesiological primacy, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Um, but then once, and then, then after that, there were subsequent churches, patriarchates that were Kind of second in honor and third in honor. So the so the the, the patriarchate of Constantinople was considered second in honor to Rome. Mm-hmm. So after the after the schism, the patriarchate of Constantinople basically became was it was determined that they held the primacy within yeah, the Byzantine the Rome. I mean the Rome of the East, the second right. Rome. Exactly. Yeah. But the problem is is that what you have now is you have a, a situation where the Patriarchate of Constantinople is ridiculously small. I mean, there's like something like a few hundred parishioners, you know, Orthodox faithful in 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 uh, in uh, Istanbul today, right? Wow. Um, and this is this is supposedly the center, the right. ecclesiological center right. of the Orthodox Church. Obviously, it's not. I mean, at least in terms of of uh, numbers, in terms of influence, in terms of power, it's clearly the Church of Moscow, mm-hmm. right? The Russian Orthodox Church, and so basically you have this this jockeying for power between mm-hmm. the Church of Constantinople and the Church of of Moscow, mm-hmm. and they're trying they're arguing over primacy, right? Mm-hmm. What does primacy mean? And and I just thought this is a joke, you know. This is all because <laughs> this is this is all because they they left Holy Mother Rome, you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And and uh, now I. Anyway, so these are kind of the issues that are building up on each other. To be honest, and maybe we can jump into. Oh, there's another one. I just got to mention it in passing. Mm-hmm. There's like, especially amongst converts, is a really, 
virulent kind of anti-Augustine, anti-Thomas, anti-Western thing. Sure. That is just like, it just got really old, you know. Mm. Um, but anyway, so, but to be honest, and this is probably, this is to my shame, but the moral issues, the, the, mm. the kind of, the moral issues that are, that we're seeing at play in the Catholic Church presently, mm-hmm. those weren't really an issue for me. Um, mm-hmm. I didn't think, I didn't look at the Catholic Church and go, wow, the Catholic Church has, you know, preserved Jesus Christ's teaching on marriage and fide- marital fidelity and um, hmm. teaching on, on uh, sexuality. I didn't, I didn't really think about these issues. Yeah, and and so uh, the that uh, that that's to my shame, I think. Mm-hmm. But I think that's because it's, those issues aren't really, at least in my, in my experience, they weren't uh, they weren't really a big deal in Orthodoxy, right? Really, they just never really came up. No, so I had like, I mean, I had you know a few off the top of my head. I know there were a few people in my parish that were divorced and remarried, and it honestly never. It never was a topic of discussion, or was never. It never even entered my mind that maybe that was a problem. Okay, let me you know? let me pause here because I want to I want to make a segue. You know the thing you said about how you've got the you've got Constantinople bickering with Moscow and these, you know, primacy. It, it matters. I mean, it, it's it's a reality that. How do I say this? That um, there's this funny clip from The Office. Uh, I guess the guy's the character's name is Oscar, and he says, "You know, two heads are always better than one." He says, "Name a country that doesn't have two presidents. Name a ship that sets sail without two captains." And he said, "Where would the Catholic Church be without the popes?" And he joked, you know, the joke is <laughs> <he's> completely <laughs> clueless. Yeah, but um, <laughs> the irony is that. <laughs> well, of course, he's totally missing. The, I mean, it sounds <laughs> like that having that two heads are better than one, and yet realistically. At some point, somebody's got to take the lead. Somebody's got to take the wheel. Yeah, there's yeah. only one helm. And you know, the thing you said about how it's 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 curious to say the least that after the schism, around 1054, you know, things like that. I mean, some people say that with Photius that it started even earlier. But anyway, mm-hmm. that there's this sort of um, aimlessness, this sort of um, internal disorientation among the Eastern Orthodox. And uh, a week or so ago, I got into a fairly lengthy, you know, uh, keyboard war, sort of an online debate with some people about the headship of husbands in Catholic teaching, mm. in marriage, you know. And and the thing I always keep, yeah, well, <laughs> yeah, you know, because feminism comes in many shapes and, and colors. But anyway, the thing that that always that I always come back to is. You know, in Ephesians five, Saint Paul talks about. He says, and actually, in the in the Greek, he says that marriage is a great sacrament or mystery. But here, I you know, here I speak of the church, and that really there's this that there are two sides of the same coin: marriage and the church, basically Christ and His bride. And when you tamper with one, you tamper with the other. And what I'm saying is, I really I think even in my own path into the church, I I, I noticed. I said, you know. The, the problem with the Eastern Orthodox is they're wives without a husband. They're, they've they've sep- they've separated mm. from Rome, who is, I mean, he's he's the, the sea of you know the Holy See, the Petrine Sea, is the head of the household, mm. you know, 
And uh, and and in Casti Canubi, nineteen thirty one, by Pope Pius, and, and you know, there's countless references to this idea in, in Catholic teaching. But there's this really beautiful prayer. He says, "May the Father, of whom all paternity in heaven and earth is named, and may Christ our Lord and Redeemer, who desired marriage to be and made it the mystical image of His own ineffable union with the Church." Uh, put into practice what we have taught in this letter. And, you know, when you go back to Matthew 16, which is a pivotal passage in Scripture we're dealing with the primacy and authority of the successor of Peter, which the Orthodox would say is any bishop. But anyway, it's interesting. Jesus says to, to Peter, he says, my father has revealed this to you. You know, so there, right there, there's that in revealing to Peter who Christ was, he was graced with sort of paternal insight or wisdom or authority. Yeah. And, uh, you know, my point is, when you mess with one, you mess with the other. When you mess with ecclesiology, the, the sacrament of marriage is going to suffer. Yeah. Or conversely, when you mess with the sacrament of marriage, the mystery of the church is going to suffer. Mm. And so I want to segue into that about some of, you know, talking about the synod now. I mean, it's almost over, but the issues are going to keep raging because, I mean, really, this is only halftime. I mean, this first round of the Synod is intended to, you know, uh, set the stage for a larger Synod in 2015, exactly one year later. So I want to I want to segue into that about, because you, you've already broached it, but, you know, how is marriage, and especially remarriage, treated on the ground level, in your experience, in the Eastern Orthodox Church, and also contraception. And before I, you know, uh, let you, I mean, I'll give you a few minutes or whatever to think about that, I want to read a couple things from Pope Francis, because he has an opinion about this, which I think is interesting, That where he, he is, apparently he's kind of sympathetic to the way these issues, or at least remarriage, is handled in the Eastern Orthodox Church. So let me read something, and then I want to get your take on some of the synod issues as you've seen them coming out of orthodoxy and now as a Catholic. Okay, so this was from the in-flight interview with Pope Francis, returning from World Youth Day, July 2013. He was asked about some pastoral issues. He said, quote, I believe that this is a kairos, which in Greek means a sort of a season or, or a special time. This time is a kairos of mercy. But John Paul II had the first intuition of this when he began with uh, Faustina Kowalska, and the divine mercy. He had something. He had intuited that this was a need in our time, with reference to the issue of giving communion to persons in a second union, parentheses, because those who are divorced can receive communion, there's no problem, but when they're in a second union, they can't, and parentheses, I believe that we need to look at this within the larger context of the entire pastoral care of marriage. And so it's a, it is a problem. But also, the Orthodox have a different practice. They follow the theology of what they call the oikonomia, and they give a second chance. They allow it. But I believe that this problem must be studied within the context of the pastoral care of marriage. Two weeks ago, the secretary of the Synod of Bishops met with me about the theme of the next synod. And remember, end quote, Pope Francis is talking about, he's talking in July 2013. He'd already envisioned the next synod, which is happening now. So I resume quoting, quote, it was an anthropological theme. But talking it over, going back and forth, we saw this anthropological theme. How does the faith help with one's personal life project? And in the family? 
and so pointing towards the pastoral care of marriage. We are moving towards a somewhat deeper pastoral care of marriage. And this is a problem for everyone, because there are so many of them, no? For example, I will only mention one. Cardinal Quaracino, my predecessor, he's saying in the Archdiocese of uh, Buenos Aires in Argentina, Cardinal Quaracino used to say that as far as he was concerned, half of all marriages, I think Catholic marriages, are null. But why did he say this? Because people get married lacking maturity. They get married without realizing that it is a lifelong commitment. They get married because society tells them that they have to get married. And this is where the pastoral care of marriage also comes in. And then there is the legal problem of matrimonial nullity. This has to be reviewed because ecclesiastical tribunals are not sufficient for this. End quote. Okay, so, Fred, I'm going to stop there. Let's, let's focus on the issue of second unions, remarriage, to say nothing of third or maybe more, right. in the Eastern Orthodox Church. In your experience, again, t- kind of review the points you made before I interrupted with the segue, but how was, how, how was oikonomia treated among the Orthodox, and um, how, what do you see is happening with this discussion, bringing up the Eastern method or, or approach that's, that's being uh, floated here in the Synod? Go ahead. Sure. It, well, on the one hand, it seems like it's a, it's kind of like a ploy, I think, to, to, to ground what is essentially a novelty in the Catholic Church in a, in a, in a tradition, um, that, that the Eastern Orthodox have always, or at least for a long time, it's been a thousand years or so, right? That this has been going on. Um, so I think that's part of it. Um, but I think that also, in my experience, Frankly, I and I think I mentioned this before. I didn't honestly. I didn't really be, even begin to contemplate Jesus' teaching on marriage and adultery. Even though I was, I was, I was biblically literate, right? I grew. If you grow up in a, in a devout Protestant evangelical home, you know the Bible pretty well. But even even with that, I, I, it just, I don't know why, it just didn't click that. Hey, if you get divorced and you get remarried. You're committing adultery, right? And 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 that just wasn't an issue. And at at the parish level that I was at, there were several people that were divorced and remarried. They went to communion. Nobody even nobody cared, you know. It was publicly and, acknowledged. Publicly acknowledged. No, honestly, that, you were at the same parish for six years. You knew these people very well. Yeah. And it was, I mean, so it was it was just an open open secret, so to speak. Yeah, and, and it was ne- that. Sadly, I mean, my own formation, it was never an issue. It wasn't until, basically, honestly, it wasn't until Casper made a big deal of this back, maybe a year ago or whatever, that I began to go, okay, what a, what does the church teach about this, right? And why is it important? And then I began to like look at it and go, holy smokes, you know, I, I didn't really, I mean, I probably would have been sympathetic to Casper's ideas. You know, uh, three or, three or four years ago, with their on the matters like say of contraception, um, we'll get to. I mean, okay, for, yeah, that's sure. fine. That's the second issue I, I do want to address. But um, I mean, you can speak to it. It's just I'm saying right now I want to focus on the issue of remarriage and how you know a sympathy for and here's Eastern. Th- uh huh. Go ahead. Right, Elliot. Here's the thing. I th- honestly think that the the Casperites mm-hmm. are very. They're very aware of this, right? They're very aware that um, it's not even really an issue in the Orthodox Church. Mm, wow. And and so 
And that's what they want. That's what they want for the Catholic Church. They want it to be a non-issue where nobody even bats an eye at the fact that somebody's divorced and remarried. Right. Um, that's that's I mean, maybe that's that's cynical of me to say that, but that's what it seems like, you know, that that's ultimately what they want. Mm hmm. Just just a sort of um, creep. Well, how do I say it? De facto uh, latitudinarianism, you know, de facto indifference, you know, because I mean, this is something that I don't mean to divert the topic, but again and again in some of these debates, people they say, well, so and so is not trying to change official doctrine and I say right, but if you fundamentally change the way a doctrine is lived or, or received or understood I mean again, logically that doesn't mean you're changing the doctrine, all that means is you're making it irrelevant Right. To to the actual reality, and um, I mean that 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 is something that I, I come back to again and again. I think that that um, right. And of people, course, uh, mm-hmm. sorry, go on. That what what people constantly confuse about Casper's te- method or his his tactic is he's not. He said this explicitly. He says I'm not. I don't deny the indissolubility of marriage. What his real goal is to entirely shift the center of gravity of authority. For who can decide the the nullity or validity of a marriage? He says, "Oh, a marriage that is is validly you know uh, entered into is totally indissoluble." Of course, of course, I can, that's that's official doctrine, that's dogma, that's from Jesus. And yet, that's 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 a red herring, that's a dodge. What he's really working for, and others like him, I think, um, is to get the external forum out, get the the canonical. Uh, Apparatus out of the picture and let and, and and leave it to the conscience of the people of the parishioners, maybe even in the confessional, and really to sort of give a de facto pass, like you said you saw in the Eastern Orthodox Church, where it's just sort of stamp on the hand, go, you know. So go ahead, right? Uh, let's see. Meaning, I'm saying that. <laughs> yeah, I know. I'm sorry. I, again, I didn't want to derail, but I'm saying that. I lost the, my train of thought. No, the issue I was, I was is, so enraptured by what you were uh, saying. Of Ellie. course, I, I mean, you know, I put people to sleep all the time. <laughs> but no, it's not. I mean, I believe the Orthodox also believe that every every true marriage is oh, insoluble. Sure. That you, that's 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 the point I wanted to make. Right, that, and yet practically, the Orthodox will say ter- divorce is terrible. We should, you know, it's it's um, not the marriage is indissoluble per se, but but. You know, no, but you know, divorce is 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 contrary to the to the, to the will of our Lord, and, and we should do everything we can. But we also acknowledge that sin happens, and people, you know, relationships break up, and these things happen, and people are human, and and then economia comes in, right? And yeah. well, for the good of our souls, for the good of the soul of the individual, right? Uh, yeah, we'll, it's, it's we'll sort of you know, Jesus explicitly said, whoever marries another. After having been married, or after the other was married, commits adultery, which yeah. is an objective bar to the kingdom. Right. And the the, oh, yeah. the 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 trend for a long time has been, cool story, bro, but yeah. we got to get yeah. on with our lives. And and you know this is another point that it's really the fundamentals. I mean, I think sometimes it feels frustrating to be in a period of the church when it seems like even the most obvious things are forgotten, and yet it's also kind of a blessing because it allows us to come right back to the roots of our faith and the the point that always comes back to my mind when I hear about all this about um, you know I'm not trying to change the doctrine I'm not trying to change the faith I just want to change the practice is 
James, you know, that bulwark against sola fide, against salvation by faith alone. Faith without works is dead, and any faith which which issues in unholy or sinful works is not a true faith. And what that means is that the way you implement or practice or live out what you say you believe can literally negate or mm. or in, you know invalidate the the substance of what you say you believe. And so what I'm saying is that people throw this idea around that well, oh, doctrine and and what we believe is so important and immutable. Of course, we're not trying to challenge that. We just want to sort of adapt the pastoral applications, but the doctrine is the, so. the doctrine think- is the faith. The pastoral applications are the works, and if the works basically, practically, obviously undermine or basically are, are contradictory to the faith, that that faith has been lost. And so yeah. you can't again get back to the point about the Eastern Orthodox with worship. To trifle and tamper with the worship is to trifle and tamper with the faith. Because, again, the work of the people. Worship is how faith is expressed, is shown to be real. And also, pastoral practice is how the the faith in the indissolubility of marriage is expressed. Mm -hmm. And to get all wishy-washy about the practice and think, oh, that's that's actually, it's a Kantian error. You know, Kant, I don't want to get too far afield, but Immanuel Kant, a a German, rather Prussian philosopher, his theory was that there's these noumena, which are the real things in themselves. But all we can have, all we can avail ourselves of, are the phenomena, phenomena right, yeah. which which are known through us through these categories in our mind. And what I'm saying is that he really believed that we could never directly access or enjoy an experience or validation of things as they really are. We, we were trapped inside of our own categories and our phenomena, our experiences. I believe that, that there's this, inf- this Kantian sort of delusion going around that, well... As long as you leave the noumena intact, way up there in the heavens, yeah, you know, hey, look, on the reality, the reality is we've got to deal with the, you know, our experiences, and that's that's a huge error because, again, that's not incarnational. That 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 creates a, a disunity in the divine will and the human will, which which you know that it's a dogma of the faith that that Christ, his two human natures were they worked together, that he had two human wills. Which conform to the divine will, and so anyway, right, I don't speaking, want to get a part. And, spe- and speaking yeah. of diothelitism, that's mm-hmm. the doctrine. So Saint Maximus the Confessor, right, who's the big diothelite champion, he's and he's huge in his that's right. He's like the go-to guy, right? But yep. he's he's got this great quote. He says, he says, doctrine. I th- I'm pretty sure. I hope I get this right. I don't have it in front of me. Mm-hmm. He says something in the effect of doctrine without practice is the or I think he says theology. It's either theology or doctrine without mm-hmm. practice is the theology or doctrine of demons. Yes, and there's a right? similar quote from a desert father. He says, fasting without prayer is the fasting of demons. And I think right. that's a similar idea. So go ahead, elaborate a little bit on that. Well, just, just the, and it comes back to this Casperite thing where you think you can separate doctrine from practice, right? That you can leave the doctrine intact, right? But have this practice that's that's... That's uh, really totally at, at odds with the totally actual. at odds with the doctrine, right? Mm-hmm. Well, th- that's that's basically like saying that you claim you have faith in our Lord Jesus while living a life of of dissolute, right? Uh, well, well dis- faith and works, faith and works—they have right, to work exactly. together. That 
you know, the works validate or invalidate the faith. I'm going to give you a, a winner's bell because you hit the nail on the head. And th this, it's very sad. It's, it's a Protestant idea to think that you can just sort of, as long as in your heart of hearts you have the right faith, um, that, well, you know, again, sin boldly. You know, do yeah. do pastoral compromise boldly. And but, by the way, I dug up that Maximus quote quotation. It says here, I, it doesn't provide an exact source, but here on the sourced, you know, the ultimate authority, Wikipedia, theology without practice is the theology of demons. You know, because again, Saint James in the epistle says, "You say you have faith without works. Show me your faith by your works." And, or rather, I'll show you my faith by my works. He says, because even the demons believe and they tremble. But that doesn't suffice. So having the mere faith and the indissolubility of marriage doesn't suffice if your pastoral practice, if your the way you lead people to live that faith out is contradictory. And, and, and it really is. I mean, this is one of those crunch times in the church. I believe that. This is, this is where the rubber hits the road, where the... The, the ban hammer, you know, basically authority must, again, the Father's authority, the authority of Peter, the authority of the head of the church, as in a mystical way, as obviously the vicar of Christ, has got to be, has got to be brought to bear on these issues. There's only so much room for debate. I mean, because you look in the Gospels, the, the disciples were arguing among themselves about who was the greatest and all that, right? Christ always intervened. And therefore, his vicar must always intervene. So that's what we're praying for, is we're praying that Pope Francis can, you know, sure, I'm glad that he's, he's allowing this free flow of ideas, because, you know, the funny thing is, I, I know, and I'll admit, Pope Francis frustrates me with some of the things he says, and he frustrates a lot of people, but I will say this. no idea. He, he has forced a lot of people to go back to their catechisms, to mm. go back to their Bible and say, wait, really? Is that... Okay. Wow. Okay. I guess that is is part of our faith, and or or to at least to say, well, I wouldn't have said it that way, but I mean, I see his point. And so, I grant there's value in in this sort of melee of debate, and yet there's a time for everything, you know, as Ecclesiastes says, a time for dialogue and a time for decision. So I'm really praying that that Pope Francis can can. Uh, that after he's heard what's out there, and that he can he can be aided by the graces of his his office as the vicar of Christ, that he he sees the disciples arguing amongst themselves, and he sets them straight. He sees a storm, and he appears to be asleep. And you know, just like Christ, I'm hoping that he's going to wake up in a really spectacular way, so that because there's so much immediate attention on him, I think it would be a beautiful thing if he could speak in such a way that all these ears are attuned to him and, and he vindicates the, the, the faith in a really beautiful way. And so I, I mean I'm I'm sort of a pessimist or I'm very melancholy by nature, but I you know I'm not thrown in the towel. I'm not worried. It's just I think it's very important to, to understand, you know, Fred, from your experience that this idea of praising the doctrine to to the heavens on the books in the tradition and yet just giving that easy you know, sort of a Dutch door, rotate, revolving door, pass to any kind of pastoral uh, issue is it, it doesn't it doesn't wash. Okay, and right. so yeah, do you have any other thoughts on that? Because I want to move into the contraception issue, but please, by yeah, no, no, I, I'm I'm ready to transition. Let's do it. Okay, that so, was great. I, yeah. I'm totally with you. Yeah. So um, 
again, we're just looking at, you know, Pope Francis, I think, feels that he, he likes to shake people up and he wants us to always, you know, be um, aware of why do we believe what we believe. And so he's, he's spoken about maybe there's another way to look at remarriage. Um, I personally think there really are very narrow limits in how much the church can alter that. I think you agree. Um, but but another issue is about contraception. And there's an interesting quotation. It's, I think it's the only time Pope Francis that I know of has directly spoken about humana vitae. And I, and I, I want to clarify to the listeners that at the end of this synod, this round of the synod, apparently Pope Francis has it in mind to beatify Pope Paul VI, who presided over most of the Second Vatican Council and its uh, implementation in the 60s and 70s. And he preceded Pope John Paul II, well, Pope John Paul I, and then Pope John Paul II. Okay, And really his most famous encyclical, Paul VI, was Humanae Vitae which means concerning or of human life. And it, it was it's a very short encyclical. Some of them are lengthy. I mean, uh, I have a copy here that's only 15 pages of printed text. And it's significant because at that time, the 60s, the crazy 60s, in fact, 1968, and I think there's at least one or two books written about just the year 1968, how it was this, this sort of epochal uh, shift in human interaction that it was a wild time liberalism was everywhere people thought everything was up for grabs including the very hard teaching about contraception that 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 any any act or any effort to interrupt the intrinsic nature of the conjugal act meaning that you know sex between a husband and wife is inherently and always immoral and wrong right. a mortal sin you know, that's that's a hard teaching, sort of like in John 6 about the Eucharist. I mean, that's a hard teaching, you know. And so, like the disciples, it might say, well, it's better that if that's the case, it's better no one married. But despite all this debate and uh, confusion and, and wonderment about, oh, maybe the church can finally come to terms with the real world in, in modern times, kind of a bolt, you know, out of the blue, Paul VI just... You know, I always think of the Ents in in the Lord of the Rings. How, for a long time, they sound silent; they're immobile. Nobody even pays them any attention. But when it's crunch time, they unroot themselves. They start moving, and they're full of power. And they they set things straight. They 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 deal with, you know, the darkness. That's what he did. He stood against every expectation. He stood against consensus around him that the church really has to kind of be realistic about this. And he, and in this brief encyclical, he said, again, he just firmly and authoritatively reiterated the absolute impermissibility of contraception, contraception in uh, sexual life and especially in Christian marriage. So anyway, here is Pope Francis wanting to beatify mm -hmm. Paul the Sixth at the end of this synod. Right. And I think that's significant. And so I want to read the one quotation I know of, there may be others, but uh, where he talks about that. And, and, I want to, and then again, the same thing, I want to get your take on the issue of contraception. Because again, to hear the, you know, Paul VI, the, the, the Catholic Church teach, it sounds like, wow, contraception is a huge issue. It's a mortal sin. It's, a, it's essential, or rather, not practicing contraception is essential to one of the seven sacraments, you know, marriage. 
So it's a big deal. So let me read the quotation and then get your kind of take on what do you see happening with the Synod or how were things in the Orthodox Church. Okay, so this was in a March 5th interview in an Italian journal. So again, the uh, translation error caveat always is there. But anyway, quote, everything depends on humani... Uh, excuse me, I'll start again. Quote, everything depends on how humani vitae is interpreted. Paul VI himself, in the end, urged confessors to be very merciful and pay attention to concrete situations. But his genius was prophetic. He had the courage to take a stand against the majority, to defend moral discipline, to exercise a cultural restraint, to oppose present and future neo-Malthusianism. The question is not that of changing doctrine, but of digging deep and making sure that pastoral care takes into account situations and what it is possible for persons to do." End quote. So, what do you think? What are your reactions? Go ahead. Right, that just sounds like, uh, I mean, basically, that just sounds like what I heard in the Orthodox Church vis-a-vis economia, you know? Okay. Um, the, and, and it seems like he's setting up a, a divorce between doctrine and, and, uh, con- these concrete situations, as he says. Mm-hmm. Right? Um, unfortunately, he doesn't really expound on that, so I'm mm-hmm. not sure, I'm not sure what he means by concrete situations. Mm-hmm. Right? But, um, let's be honest. I mean, how does this work out in, in real life? Mm-hmm. I'll give you an example. In the Orthodox Church, a huge example, right? Mm-hmm. So, so I don't know if people know this, but Patriarch Bartholomew, if you just Google mm-hmm. Patriarch Bartholomew, so Patriarch Bartholomew is the ecumenical patriarch of mm-hmm. the Orthodox Church. He's, he's right? the big dog. He's the top dog. Mm-hmm. If you Google Patriarch Bartholomew abortion, right, he comes out with statements that are basically, I mean, he's, he kind of soft, he soft pedals mm-hmm. around, but it's basically pro-abortion. Really? Get, or rather me, pro-choice, of or course. Or pro-choice, right. That's so the term, you know. Let me, let me read this. This is from his book, Encountering the Mystery, right? Wow. Now, he can says, you give a date? When was this? Uh, the book was published, I don't know. It's recent. It's like a few years old. You know? Okay. But he says, I also encounter many and diverse issues related to the sanctity of life from birth through death. Those issues range from sensitive matters of sexuality to highly controversial questions like the death penalty. In all such social and moral issues, it is not one or another position that the Orthodox Church seeks to promote in a defensive spirit. Hmm. Indeed, we would normally refrain from expounding a single rigidly defined dogma on social and moral challenges. Hmm. Rather, it is the sacredness of the human person created in image and likeness of God that the church at all times seeks to underline. Right? Doesn't that sound like mm-hmm. a typical modernist gar- gobbledygook that we get from, from, from the Casperites and their, and their uh, cohorts? Right. It's basically like the, 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 the the human person is sacrosanct. Now, obviously, the human person is sacrosanct. Our Lord shed His blood for human persons, mm-hmm, but mm-hmm. it's like it's like that. It's but basically what it boils down to is private opinion, right? And, and, and he goes on later to say uh, in one of his, I think it's in the same book or an interview, he says he says basically it's not it's not that as I as a patriarch I can't enter into the bedroom of people, right? Mm-hmm. So. 
this is where this is where this economy ends. Like I, I That's don't know the if, kind of end game of it. That oh it sure, I mean this is this and this isn't just some crazy, you know, outlier obscure, in the Orthodox tradition. Yeah. This is the ecumenical patriarch. So you know, uh-huh. like it. Did. So he's yeah. I mean, it, it that that is if if you're on now, board with the economia right. bandwagon, then that's exactly yeah. This is where it leads. Hmm. You go yeah. You don't even try to play the dogma. You don't even try to play the doctrine game anymore. You hmm. basically just say we're not even gonna. He says, uh, we the Orthodox Church normally refrains from expounding a single rigidly defined dogma on social and moral challenges. Hmm. Right. It's back to our Maoist or modernist game, you know, strange, strange <laughs> yeah. visions, you know. <sighs> yeah. Well, that's interesting, you know. So, so basically, in your experience when you were Orthodox, I mean, contraception was just sort of a no-brainer. Like, well, and you leave know it what? Up. Is that right? Yeah, that's true. And unfortunately, I was on the. I thought the kind of those who took. I mean, there are base. There are some clergy in the Orthodox Church and laymen who follow these clergy. Um, who basically hold a position that's tantamount to the Catholic position, mm-hmm. right? But, but they're, I, in my experience, they're in the minority, right? And and um, they're also seen, at least from what I saw, they were kind of seen as weird, you mm-hmm. know, like these pre, these clergy that would would say that the teaching of the fathers was was opposed to uh, contraception. Wow, they were just kind of seen as weird, you know, and. Uh, and unfortunately, I was I was kind of one of those. Hmm. And and it wasn't until I came into the Catholic tradition, or ca- basically confronted the Catholic tradition on these moral issues, say, oh, I get it now. I mean, you understand, you begin to understand natural law, and you know, our sexual organs are oriented towards certain ends, and et cetera, et cetera. Right? I mean, these the the it's really beautiful how it all fits together. Hmm. You know? Yep. No, I agree. I mean, it was funny when I was coming into the church it was weird because at that time I was unmarried you know and it didn't have any bearing on my life about contraception you know um, but it was weird that once the teaching on or rather against or rather about contraception once it clicked it was huge it, it just it tied into so many things I mean sort of this the we, we call these things sacraments and that's a word gets that gets thrown around but think about it I, I mean, I would hope that every person who's married would would take a moment and say, the thing I'm in, this marriage, is literally divinely established channel of saving my soul and saving the world. And that's big. Therefore, anything which undermines or, or violates that sacrament, you know, that channel of grace, is a, it's a big deal. And um, it was weird. I, once, I got, once I got turned on to the church's moral teachings... Um, a lot of things, a lot of dominoes fell into place, and I ended up writing this very long, uh, you could say, coming out post about, okay, I'm going to be Catholic, and actually, then I, I thrashed out some of the whole contraception and sexual morality issues, you know, theology of the body and all that. And it was, I had a friend, who he and his wife, not Catholic, they were compelled to stop using contraception, and I thought that was really powerful, you know. And um, anyway. I do want to. I want to note an irony here because you talk about again. Who was that? Were these, were these Protestant friends? Yeah, they were. They they were. Wow. They understood. They understood the intrinsic logic of you know the moral issues and, and the. I mean, because again, you know, any Christian there's there's an instinctive, there's an instinct for the Catholic truth. Oh yeah. By the virtue of baptism, you for know, sure. it's sort of a, right. a homing beacon 
And um, they, once I laid it out, as of, I mean, at that time I was still technically a Protestant, you know, I put it in very um, easy to understand terms, you could say, very Christian terms. And they, they were compelled, they were convicted, and they bought onto it. And so, anyway, um, you know, who is that? I'm sorry, again, the book you cited, give us the author again. Right, it's the Ecumenical Patriarch, Bartholomew. Okay. And the title of the book is Encountering the Mystery. Right, okay. Well, it's interesting Under, here. It says, and the subtitle is Understanding Orthodox Christianity Today. Right, okay, so today is, yeah. Well, now, to be fair, to be fair, Elliot, uh-huh. There would be there would be tons of Orthodox who would be like this guy is full of garbage, mm-hmm. you know. But again, <laughs> without a without an absolute supreme authority in the Orthodox Church, it's all just sort of he said she said or sort of squabbling on uh, you know among right. equals, right? You know, primos inter pares. But anyway, here I am again at Wiki, the ultimate authority. The ultimate authority, yeah. And it, here's ecumenical reactions to Humana Vitae, 1968. Ecumenical reactions were mixed. Lutherans and the World Council of Churches were disappointed. Um, Eugene Carson Blake criticized the concepts of nature and natural law, which in his view still dominated Catholic theology, as outdated. This concern dominated several articles in Catholic and non-Catholic journals at the time. And here's here's the point I want to make. Patriarch Athenagoras, how would you say that? Athenagoras? Athenagoras? Uh, Athenagoras, probably. Athenagoras I stated his full agreement with Pope Paul VI, quote, he could not have spoken in any other way. And that was the quotation I was getting at, that when Pope Paul II, or VI, he, he spoke against the consensus view of, hey, you know, let's just sort of con- just get with the modern times. At that time, the Orthodox, they agreed. You know, they, they got it. They saw this is the tradition. And, and yet, in only 40 years or so, more, where is the Orthodox Church now? And, and, and really, to sort of bring things to a close, where is the Catholic Church now? What does this synod show us about the mind of the bishops? You know, have most of our bishops and cardinals, or rather I should say cardinals, because these are the cardinals right now, have they imbibed a little too easily some of the Eastern Orthodox idea that, well, just keep affirming the creed and the doctrines, but let's be realistic, come on about the practice, you know, and that's the question, and that's what, and it is a question mark over the next few days, what is going to be decided, how will Pope Francis intervene, and over the next year, what uh, what's going to happen? So, anyway, I want, to, I want to kind of bring things to a close there, and I want to let you add any other comments you might have, really about anything we've talked about, Fred, so go ahead. Well, I, I probably want to end on a hopeful note. I, I was, did you see, I'm sure you've seen the uh, interview with Cardinal Pell, did you see that today? No, I mean I, I glanced. Or the, I glimpsed the clip it. with Cardinal Pell? No, nope. see that? No, no. Oh, it's it's outstanding. I think it's on Rorate Chaley. Oh um, boy. <laughs> <laughs> That's an inside <laughs> joke. No, but go ahead. <laughs> so it's on an unclean source. Yes. <laughs> an ideologically unreconstructed outlet. Yeah, yeah go ahead. Um, that's probably be edited out, but uh, <laughs> they <laughs> they they link to it, and it's just outstanding. I just thought this guy, this guy, I was so impressed. This Elliot. guy, and it, really? Okay. Yeah. So then I was it was awesome because uh, what, it was what like was the, the one it was takeaway? Like the one it was like finally a cardinal comes out and just lays it down, you know, 
and 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 a cardinal worthy of the name. I mean, obviously besides Burke, right? But Burke's like the he seems to be the outlier. But mm-hmm. but I think honestly, I think I think the majority of the sin the Synod Fathers realize this this is garbage. Yeah, it's not going to wash. That no, some of the not. frenzy, the, the sort of populist or sort of um, get with the modern times, get the smell of the people frenzy has got. There's a there's a there's a line, and uh, and that's great. I mean, that's a beautiful thing, and that's what I said earlier. Is that you know, sure, I I might be melancholy or skeptical or whatever, cynical by nature, but I'm a Catholic, and I trust in the guidance of the Holy Spirit over the magisterium, as ugly as it is. Um, and I do. I, I just will say that I do wish um, that Pope Francis would. Again, this is my personal. He's the Pope. You know, it's good to be the King. He's doing what he's doing. But I, I think that there's. I've, I've seen it in a lot of different venues. People are confused, and they're a little bit worried. They feel, you know, in limbo, sort of floating, treading water. And now is the time for. Some of the uh, the old school clarity, just you know, sort out. You know, again, Christ saw the disciples arguing amongst themselves, and he, he stepped in. So, well, Fred, I really appreciate all you've brought to the table. You have been listening to the One Peter Five podcast. This has been a production of Signo Media, copyright 2014, all rights reserved. Please remember to visit us online at www.1peter5.com. That's www.1peter5, all spelled out, all one word, dot com. You can join our Facebook page at facebook.com forward slash 1peter5 and follow us on Twitter again at twitter.com forward slash 1peter5. If you feel that we have provided you with something of value, please, please hit our donate page and make a contribution. It not only helps pay for our web hosting and the fine content we provide, but helps us keep food on the table, and that's kind of important. Until next time, I'm Steve Skojak. Thanks for listening.